0: Section eleven of The Descent of Man Part One This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rory Lawton in September two thousand ten. The Descent of Man Part One by Charles Darwin. Chapter four Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals. Continued. Part two. It is, however, impossible to decide in many cases whether certain social instincts have been acquired through natural selection, or are the indirect result of other instincts and faculties, such as sympathy, reason, experience, and a tendency to imitation, or again whether they are simply the result of long-continued habit. So remarkable an instinct as the placing sentinels to warn the community of danger can hardly have been the indirect result of any of these faculties it must therefore have been directly acquired on the other hand the habit followed by the males of some social animals of defending the community and of attacking their enemies or their prey in concert may perhaps have originated from mutual sympathy but courage and in most cases strength must have been previously acquired probably through natural selection of the various instincts and habits some are much stronger than others that is Some either give more pleasure in their performance and more distress in their prevention than others, or, which is probably quite as important, they are, through inheritance, more persistently followed, without exciting any special feeling of pleasure or pain. We are ourselves conscious that some habits are much more difficult to cure or change than others. Hence, a struggle may often be observed in animals between different instincts, or between an instinct and some habitual disposition as when a dog rushes after a hare, is rebuked, pauses, hesitates, pursues again, or returns ashamed to his master. Or, as between the love of a female dog for her young puppies and for her master, for she may be seen to slink away to them, as if half ashamed of not accompanying her master. But the most curious instance known to me, of one instinct getting the better of another, is the migratory instinct conquering the maternal instinct the former is wonderfully strong. A confined bird will at the proper season beat her breast against the wires of her cage until it is bare and bloody. It causes young salmon to leap out of the fresh water, in which they could continue to exist, and thus unintentionally to commit suicide. Everyone knows how strong the maternal instinct is, leading even timid birds to face great danger, though with hesitation, and in opposition to the instinct of self-preservation. Nevertheless, the migratory instinct is so powerful that late in the autumn, swallows, house martins, and swifts frequently desert their tender young, leaving them to perish miserably in their nests. Footnote. This fact, the Reverend L. Jenin states, was first recorded by the illustrious Jenner, and has since been confirmed by several observers, especially by Mr. Blackball. This latter careful observer examined, late in the autumn, during two years, thirty-six nests. He found that twelve contained young dead birds, five contained eggs on the point of being hatched, and three eggs not nearly hatched. Many birds, not yet old enough for a prolonged flight, are likewise deserted and left behind. End footnote. We can perceive that an instinctive impulse, if it be in any way more beneficial to a species than some other or opposed instinct, Would be rendered the more potent of the two through natural selection, for the individuals which had it most strongly developed would survive in larger numbers. Whether this is the case with the migratory in comparison with the maternal instinct may be doubted. The great persistence, or steady action of the former at certain seasons of the year, during the whole day, may give it for a time paramount force. Man a social animal everyone will admit that man is a social being. We see this in his dislike of solitude, and in his wish for society beyond that of his own family. Solitary confinement is one of the severest punishments which can be inflicted. Some authors suppose that man primevally lived in single families, but at the present day, though single families, are only two or three together, roam the solitudes of some savage lands, they always, as far as I can discover, hold friendly relations with other families inhabiting the same district. Such families occasionally meet in council, and unite for their common defence. It is no argument against savage man, being a social animal, that the tribes inhabiting adjacent districts are almost always at war with each other, for the social instincts never extend to all the individuals of the same species. Judging from the analogy of the majority of the quadrumana, it is probable that the early ape-like progenitors of man were likewise social, but this is not of much importance for us. Although man, as he now exists, has few special instincts, having lost any which his early progenitors may have possessed, this is no reason why he should not have retained from an extremely remote period some degree of instinctive love and sympathy for his fellows. We are indeed all conscious that we do possess such sympathetic feelings. Footnote. Hume remarks, There seems a necessity for confessing that the happiness and misery of others are not spectacles altogether indifferent to us, but that the view of the former communicates a secret joy. The appearance of the latter throws a melancholy damp over the imagination. End footnote. But our consciousness does not tell us whether they are instinctive, having originated long ago in the same manner as with the lower animals, or whether they have been acquired by each of us during our early years. As man is a social animal, it is almost certain that he would inherit a tendency to be faithful to his comrades, and obedient to the leader of his tribe, for these qualities are common to most social animals. He would consequently possess some capacity for self-command. He would, from an inherited tendency, be willing to defend in concert with others, his fellow men, and would be ready to aid them in any way which should not too greatly interfere with his own welfare or his own strong desires. The social animals which stand at the bottom of the scale are guided almost exclusively, and those which stand higher in the scale are largely guided by special instincts in the aid which they give to the members of the same community. But they are likewise in part impelled by mutual love and sympathy, assisted apparently by some amount of reason. Although man, as just remarked, has no special instincts to tell him how to aid his fellow men, he still has the impulse, and with his improved intellectual faculties would naturally be much guided in this respect by reason and experience. Instinctive sympathy would also cause him to value highly the approbation of his fellows, for, as mister Bain has clearly shown, the love of praise and the strong feeling of glory, and the still stronger horror of scorn and infamy, are due to the workings of sympathy. Consequently, man would be influenced in the highest degree by the wishes, approbation, and blame of his fellow men, as expressed by their gestures and language. Thus the social instincts, which must have been acquired by man in a very rude state, and probably even by his early ape-like progenitors, still give the impulse to some of his best actions but his actions are in a higher degree determined by the expressed wishes and judgment of his fellow men, and unfortunately very often by his own strong selfish desires. But as love, sympathy and self-command become strengthened by habit, and as the power of reasoning becomes clearer, so that man can value justly the judgments of his fellows, he will feel himself impelled, apart from any transitory pleasure or pain, to certain lines of conduct. He might then declare, not that any barbarian or uncultivated man could thus think, I am the supreme judge of my own conduct, and in the words of Kant, I will not in my own person violate the dignity of humanity. The more enduring social instincts conquer the less persistent instincts. We have not, however, as yet considered the main point on which, from a present point of view, the whole question of the moral sense turns. Why should a man feel that he ought to obey one instinctive desire rather than another? Why is he bitterly regretful if he has yielded to a strong sense of self-preservation, and has not risked his life to save that of a fellow-creature? Or why does he regret having stolen food from hunger? It is evident in the first place that with mankind the instinctive impulses have different degrees of strength. A savage will risk his own life to save that of a member of the same community, but will be wholly indifferent about a stranger a young and timid mother, urged by the maternal instinct, will, without a moment's hesitation, run the greatest danger for her own infant, but not for a mere fellow-creature. Nevertheless, many a civilized man, or even boy, who never before risked his life for another, but full of courage and sympathy, has disregarded the instinct of self-preservation, and plunged at once into a torrent to save a drowning man, though a stranger in this case man is impelled by the same instinctive motive which made the heroic little american monkey formerly described save his keeper by attacking the great and dreaded baboon such actions as the above appear to be the simple result of the greater strength of the social or maternal instincts rather than that of any other instinct or motive for they are performed too instantaneously for reflection or for pleasure or pain to be felt at the time though if prevented by any cause distress, or even misery might be felt. In a timid man, on the other hand, the instinct of self-preservation might be so strong that he would be unable to force himself to run any such risk, perhaps not even for his own child. I am aware that some persons maintain that actions performed impulsively, as in the above cases, do not come under the dominion of the moral sense, and cannot be called moral. They confine this term to actions done deliberately, after a victory over opposing desires or when prompted by some exalted motive, but it appears scarcely possible to draw any clear line of distinction of this kind. Footnote. I refer here to the distinction between what has been called material and formal morality. I am glad to find that Professor Huxley takes the same view on this subject as I do. Mr. Leslie Stephen remarks, The metaphysical distinction between material and formal morality is as irrelevant as other such distinctions. End footnote. As far as exalted motives are concerned, many instances have been recorded of savages destitute of any feeling of general benevolence towards mankind, and not guided by any religious motive, who have deliberately sacrificed their lives as prisoners, rather than betray their comrades, and surely their conduct ought to be considered as moral. Footnote. I have given one such case, namely of three Patagonian Indians who preferred being shot, one after the other, to betraying the plans of their companions in war." As far as deliberation and the victory over opposing motives are concerned, animals may be seen doubting between opposed instincts in rescuing their offspring or comrades from danger, yet their actions, though done for the good of others, are not called moral. Moreover, anything performed very often by us will at last be done without deliberation or hesitation, and can then hardly be distinguished from an instinct. Yet surely no one will pretend that such an action ceases to be moral. On the contrary, we all feel that an act cannot be considered as perfect, or as performed in the most noble manner, unless it be done impulsively, without deliberation or effort, in the same manner as by a man in whom the requisite qualities are innate. He who is forced to overcome his fear or want of sympathy before he acts, deserves, however, in one way higher credit than the man whose innate disposition leads him to a good act without effort. As we cannot distinguish between motives, we rank all actions of a certain class as moral, if performed by a moral being. A moral being is one who is capable of comparing his past and future actions or motives, and of approving or disapproving of them. We have no reason to suppose that any of the lower animals have this capacity. Therefore, when a newfoundland dog drags a child out of the water, or a monkey faces danger to rescue its comrade, or takes charge of an orphan monkey, we do not call its conduct moral. But in the case of man, who alone can with certainty be ranked as a moral being, actions of a certain class are called moral, whether performed deliberately, after a struggle with opposing motives, or impulsively through instinct, or from the effects of slowly gained habit. But to return to our more immediate subject. Although some instincts are more powerful than others, and thus lead to corresponding actions, yet it is untenable that in man the social instincts, including the love of praise and fear of blame, possess greater strength, or have through long habit acquired greater strength than the instincts of self-preservation, hunger, lust, vengeance, etc., Why then does man regret, even though trying to banish such regret, that he has followed the one natural impulse rather than the other, and why does he further feel that he ought to regret his conduct? Man in this respect differs profoundly from the lower animals. Nevertheless we can, I think, see with some degree of clearness the reason of this difference. Man, from the activity of his mental faculties, cannot avoid reflection. Past impressions and images are incessantly and clearly passing through his mind. Now, with those animals which live permanently in a body, the social instincts are ever-present and persistent. Such animals are always ready to utter the danger signal, to defend the community, and to give aid to their fellows in accordance with their habits. They feel at all times, without the stimulus of any special passion or desire, some degree of love and sympathy for them. They are unhappy if long separated from them, and always happy to be again in their company. So it is with ourselves. Even when we are quite alone, how often do we think with pleasure or pain of what others think of us, of their imagined approbation or disapprobation, and this all follows from sympathy, a fundamental element of the social instincts. A man who possessed no trace of such instincts would be an unnatural monster. On the other hand, the desire to satisfy hunger, or any passion such as vengeance, is in its nature temporary, and can for time be fully satisfied. Nor is it easy, perhaps hardly possible, to call up with complete vividness the feeling, for instance, of hunger, nor indeed, as has often been remarked, of any suffering. The instinct of self-preservation is not felt except in the presence of danger, and many a coward has thought himself brave until he has met his enemy face to face. The wish for another man's property is perhaps as persistent a desire as any that can be named, but even in this case the satisfaction of actual possession is generally a weaker feeling than the desire. Many a thief, if not a habitual one, after success has wondered why he stole some article. Footnote Enmity or hatred seems also to be a highly persistent feeling, perhaps more so than any other that can be named. Envy is defined as hatred of another for some excellence or success. And Bacon insists, Essay 9, of all other affections envy is the most importune and continual. Dogs are very apt to hate both strange men and strange dogs, especially if they live near at hand, but do not belong to the same family, tribe, or clan this feeling would thus seem to be innate and is certainly a most persistent one it seems to be the complement and converse of the true social instinct from what we hear of savages it would appear that something of the same kind holds good with them if this be so it would be a small step in any one to transfer such feelings to any member of the same tribe if he had done him an injury and had become his enemy nor is it probable that the primitive conscience would reproach a man for injuring his enemy rather it would reproach him if he had not revenged himself to do good in return for evil to love your enemy is a height of morality to which it may be doubted whether the social instincts would by themselves ever have led us it is necessary that these instincts together with sympathy should have been highly cultivated and extended by the aid of reason instruction and the love or fear of God before any such golden rule would ever be thought of and obeyed. End footnote. A man cannot prevent past impressions often repassing through his mind. He will thus be driven to make a comparison between the impressions of past hunger, vengeance satisfied, or danger shunned at other men's cost, with the almost ever-present instinct of sympathy, and with his early knowledge of what others consider as praiseworthy or blamable. This knowledge cannot be banished from his mind, and from instinctive sympathy is esteemed of great moment. He will then feel as if he had been balked in following a present instinct or habit, and this with all animals causes dissatisfaction or even misery. The above case of the swallow affords an illustration, though of a reversed nature, of a temporary, though for the time strongly persistent instinct conquering another instinct, which is usually dominant over all others. At the proper season these birds seem all day long to be impressed with the desire to migrate. Their habits change. They become restless or noisy and congregate in flocks. Whilst the mother bird is feeding or brooding over her nestlings, the maternal instinct is probably stronger than the migratory. But the instinct which is the more persistent gains the victory, and at last, at a moment when her young ones are not in sight, she takes flight and deserts them. When arrived at the end of her long journey, and the my greater instinct has ceased to act, what an agony of remorse the bird would feel if, from being endowed with great mental activity, she could not prevent the image constantly passing through her mind of her young ones perishing in the bleak north from cold and hunger. At the moment of action man will no doubt be apt to follow the stronger impulse, and though this may occasionally prompt him to the noblest deeds, it will more commonly lead him to gratify his own desires at the expense of other men. But after their gratification, when past and weaker impressions are judged by the ever-enduring social instinct, and by his deep regard for the good opinion of his fellows, retribution will surely come. He will then feel remorse, repentance, regret, or shame. This latter feeling, however, relates almost exclusively to the judgment of others. He will consequently resolve more or less firmly to act differently for the future. And this is conscience, for conscience looks backwards and serves as a guide for the future. The nature and strength of the feelings which we call regret, shame, repentance or remorse depend apparently not only on the strength of the violated instinct, but partly on the strength of the temptation, and often still more on the judgment of our fellows. How far each man values the appreciation of others depends on the strength of his innate or acquired feeling of sympathy, and on his own capacity for reasoning out the remote consequences of his acts. Another element is most important, although not necessary, the reverence or fear of the gods or spirits believed in by each man. And this applies especially in cases of remorse. Several critics have objected that though some slight regret or repentance may be explained by the view advocated in this chapter, it is impossible thus to account for the soul-shaking feeling of remorse. But I can see little force in this objection. My critics do not define what they mean by remorse, and I can find no definition implying more than an overwhelming sense of repentance. Remorse seems to bear the same relation to repentance as rage does to anger or agony to pain. It is far from strange that an instinct so strong and so generally admired as maternal love should, if disobeyed, lead to the deepest misery as soon as the impression of the past cause of disobedience is weakened. Even when an action is opposed to no special instinct, merely to know that our friends and equals despise us for it, is enough to cause great misery. Who can doubt that the refusal to fight a duel through fear has caused many men an agony of shame? Many a Hindu, it is said, has been stirred to the bottom of his soul by having partaken of unclean food. Here is another case of what must, I think, be called remorse dr lander acted as a magistrate in west australia and relates that a native on his farm after losing one of his wives from disease came and said that he was going to a distant tribe to spear a woman to satisfy his sense of duty to his wife i told him that if he did so i would send him to prison for life He remained about the farm for some months, but got exceedingly thin, and complained that he could not rest or eat, that his wife's spirit was haunting him, because he had not taken a life for hers. I was inexorable, and assured him that nothing should save him if he did. Nevertheless, the man disappeared for more than a year, and then returned in high condition, and his other wife told Dr. Lander that her husband had taken the life of a woman belonging to a distant tribe. But it was impossible to obtain legal evidence of the act. The breach of a rule held sacred by the tribe will thus, as it seems, give rise to the deepest feelings, and this quite apart from the social instincts, excepting in so far as the rule is grounded on the judgment of the community. How so many strange superstitions have arisen throughout the world we know not, nor can we tell how some real and great crimes, such as incest, have come to be held in an abhorrence which is not, however, quite universal. By the lowest savages it is even doubtful whether in some tribes incest would be looked on with greater horror than would the marriage of a man with a woman bearing the same name though not a relation to violate this law is a crime which the australians hold in the greatest abhorrence in this agreeing exactly with certain tribes of north america when the question is put in either district is it worse to kill a girl of a foreign tribe or to marry a girl of one's own an answer just opposite to ours would be given without hesitation. We may, therefore, reject the belief, lately insisted on by some writers, that the abhorrence of incest is due to our possessing a special God-implanted conscience. On the whole, it is intelligible that a man urged by so powerful a sentiment as remorse, though arising as above explained, should be led to act in a manner which he has been taught to believe serves as an expiation, such as delivering himself up to justice. Man prompted by his conscience will through long habit acquire such perfect self-command that his desires and passions will at last yield instantly and without a struggle to his social sympathies and instincts, including his feeling for the judgment of his fellows. The still hungry or the still revengeful man will not think of stealing food, or of wreaking his vengeance. It is possible, or as we shall hereafter see, even probable, that the habit of self-command may, like other habits, be inherited. Thus, at last, man comes to feel, through acquired and perhaps inherited habit, that it is best for him to obey his more persistent impulses. The imperious word ought seems merely to imply the consciousness of the existence of a rule of conduct, however it may have originated. Formerly, it must have been often vehemently urged that an insulted gentleman ought to fight a duel. We even say that a pointer ought to point, and a retriever to retrieve game. If they fail to do so, they fail in their duty and act wrongly. If any desire or instinct leading to an action opposed to the good of others still appears, when recalled to mind, as strong as, or stronger than, the social instinct, a man will feel no keen regret at having followed it. But he will be conscious that if his conduct were known to his fellows, it would meet with their disapprobation, and few are so destitute of sympathy as not to feel discomfort when this is realized. If he has no such sympathy, and if his desires leading to bad actions are at the time strong, and when recalled are not overmastered by the persistent social instincts and the judgment of others, then he is essentially a bad man, and the sole restraining motive left is the fear of punishment, and the conviction that in the long run it will be best for his own selfish interests to regard the good of others rather than his own. Footnote: Dr. Prosper Despine, in his Psychologie naturelle, 1868, gives many curious cases of the worst criminals who apparently have been entirely destitute of conscience. End footnote. It is obvious that everyone may with an easy conscience gratify his own desires if they do not interfere with his social instincts, that is, with the good of others. But in order to be quite free from self-reproach, or at least of anxiety, it is almost necessary for him to avoid the disapprobation, whether reasonable or not, of his fellow men. Nor must he break through the fixed habits of his life, especially if these are supported by reason, for if he does he will assuredly feel dissatisfaction. He must likewise avoid the reprobation of the one God, or gods, in whom, according to his knowledge or superstition, he may believe, but in this case the additional fear of divine punishment often supervenes. End of section 11. Recording by Rory Lawton.